How many of you have heard the story or watched the movie called The Most Dangerous Game? Have you heard that story before? Maybe, maybe you've caught it. It's a short story that was written in the 1920s. It was first adapted to film in the 30s, but it's been adapted to film over 20 times uh, since then. The first time I ever watched this, it was called Surviving the Game, and it was starring the rapper Ice-T. So, you know, I probably can't recommend that as a, a really great film to watch. But the story itself is about a big game hunter who... On his way to South America, he falls off of his yacht, and he is left behind. Nobody knows he's, he's fallen overboard. And so he just starts swimming, and he swims to what he thinks is a deserted island. And that night, he comes on the shore, and during the night, he hears gunshots on the island and realizes he's not alone there. And the next day, he discovers that there are a group of hunters on the island and they're excited to meet him and to have him join their group. And over dinner that night, uh, the lead hunter of the group who'd already been on the island says, I think I've decided I'm going to start the biggest hunt, the greatest hunt of my life. There's a new kind of animal I'm going to hunt. And this animal is creative and he's clever and he's courageous and he's able to reason. And our guy who had fallen off the boat begins to think, well, I mean, there's no animal that is able to reason until he looks at the eyes of those around the table and realizes that he's the new animal, right? And this is where we get that phrase. Actually, it goes way back to Greek mythology. The hunter becomes the hunted, and that's what's happened here. Our hunter who happened upon the island is now the hunted. i tell you this because on a much deeper level, that is what Acts 9 is all about. Here in Acts 9, the, the pursuer became the prey. And the main character, the person that we're looking at in this part of the Bible is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later would be called Paul. You know him. Saul was a fierce persecutor of the church. And you know this. We've already looked at it back in chapter 7. It was Saul who was there in the synagogue when Stephen was preaching this compelling message, and those who heard it were cut to the heart, and yet we're told they they closed their hearts, and they turned on Stephen, and they wanted to murder him. And it tells us that it was Saul who was keeping the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. And so chapter 8 comes along, and we're told that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And verse 3 of chapter 8, he then, Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, and he was dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. You go further ahead into Acts, in Acts 22, Paul's looking back on this time in his life, and he says, here's what I used to do. I used to imprison people. I'd imprison them, and I would beat them, all of those who I could find who believed in Jesus. Acts 26, again, he's reliving this moment, and he says, it was kind of like this, I thought to myself that I had to do so many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just, here's what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, but also when they were being put to death, I made sure that I cast my vote against them. I wanted everyone to know my name was signed on their death warrant. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and I was furiously enraged at them, and I kept pursuing them. I was chasing them, hunting them, even to foreign cities. He was hunting down the Christians wherever he could find them. And that's where we pick up in, in Acts chapter 9. 
Verse 1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and and when it says the way here, uh, at this time, no one yet had been called a Christian. That wasn't a name or a moniker that anyone went by. They weren't called the church. They were just called the way, and, and it may be because these were people who were walking in the way of Jesus. And, of course, Jesus said about himself, he said, I am the what? The way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And those who followed Jesus, they were just called the way. And so Saul says, I I need letters giving me permission when I get to Damascus. If I can find anyone who's belonging to the way, both men and women, I'm going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. As Luke writes all this down, he he says that Saul was uh, not just threatening Christians, but he was breathing threats and murder. It's as though persecution was the oxygen that he breathed, and he would breathe in threats and breathe out murder. Breathe in murder and breathe out threats. It's as if this wasn't like a minor or peripheral thing in Saul's life, but it went to the very core of who he was as a Pharisee. It is it's who he was on the inside, and it led him to spend his life hunting Christians, and he was breathing threats and murder murder against them. And it wasn't enough for him to do this just in, in the place that he was living in Jerusalem, but he was taking his persecution 150 miles north to Damascus, and he's planning to find any Christians he can and drag them back to Jerusalem for punishment. Saul the hunter. But little did he know, Saul the hunter was also the hunted. Look at verse 3. It says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Well, who are you, Lord? And he's heard, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Acts 22 gives us another detail. It says, uh, those who were with me, they saw the light, to be sure, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So Saul, he's going along in his life. He's been defined by all the same kinds of things that, that we find ourselves defined by in our lives, by his family of heritage, his or, family of origin, by his education, by his profession, his self-righteousness is how he's defined himself. It's how he's proved himself, and it's led him on a hunting expedition to destroy Christianity. And then one day, something he never saw coming happened. He's just going along through his life, living it as he thought he was supposed to, And then he never saw it, and it hit him. The hunter was being hunted, and he was caught. Saul didn't know who had caught him at first. Verse 5 says, uh, he calls out, Who are you, Lord? Because he he knew it had to be someone powerful, someone cunning, someone at least on his level or greater if he was caught. And he goes, Who are you, Lord? 
and the response he got. I mean, I don't even have, <laughs> I don't even have an imagination big enough to really get how these words must have landed on Saul upon hearing them. He says, "Who are you, Lord?" And what he hears back is, "I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting." You ever have a moment? When, when your mind is, it's like firing off all of the synapses at once, like every thought you could ever have is happening at once and there's fireworks going off inside your head, but it's just so much and everything is moving so fast that you're just stunned speechless. <laughs> like if someone was looking at you, they would never understand all the things that are happening on, on, on the inside at once. See it? That, that's how it had to have been for Saul at this moment. Like, like first, he's going, what? Jesus? No. No, that guy's dead. Jesus, there's no way you could, Jesus is dead. There, you can't be Jesus. And, and actually, if you look at verse 17 and, and later in 1 Corinthians 15, it indicates he didn't just hear a disembodied voice, but Saul saw Jesus with his eyes. And he had been possibly the biggest denier and maybe the greatest opponent of the message that Jesus had risen from the dead. But now he's standing here and he sees Jesus with his own eyes and he hears Jesus's words from his own lips. And he can tell, I mean, it's no mistaking, Jesus is resurrected and is alive. And then, you know, Paul's sitting here looking at him and he goes, I've been persecuting the church. I mean, I've been persecuting Christians. There was that guy, Stephen, and some girl named Susie, and there was Sally, and and there's something, and there was hundreds of others. But Jesus had just said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait a second. Persecuting? I wasn't persecuting Jesus. There was Stephen and Sally and these people. What are you talking about? Because Saul didn't understand something that maybe, maybe you have learned. Maybe you've already picked this up in your life that there is a spiritual unity between Jesus and those who belong to him that is real and it's serious and it's powerful. And Saul hadn't seen it this way yet. Jesus says, I'm Jesus and it's me that you've been coming after. And so now you've got the great and powerful and fearsome Saul who had planned to show up in Damascus and just watch them try to run and hide. I mean, they're going to try. They're going to scurry around like roaches under the foot of, of Saul. And that's the way he had imagined entering into Damascus. But now he's completely different than anything he could have ever expected. Verse 8, Saul got up off the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And those who were with him had to help him. They had to lead him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And he was emaciated, and he was weak, and for three days he was without sight, and he could neither eat nor drink. He'd come to Damascus to catch Christians, but he entered into Damascus having been caught by Christ. And though the realities were just beginning to dawn on him, Saul had not yet fully grasped the situation he was in. His, his physical blindness at this moment is for him and for us a symbol of the greater spiritual blindness that exists in his life. And I got to tell you, there are just so many people in your life and in my life walking around like this. And I'd be, I'd be silly, I'd be naive not to even say that here in our own church that, that this morning there are folks who have encountered Jesus 
You've encountered the living Christ. You've heard his voice, not audibly, but but through the lips of Christians quoting Jesus or, or speaking in the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. Or you've read the words on the page of the things that Jesus said. You've heard his voice. You've recognized his presence, maybe his even his authority that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the risen and living God. You've recognized that, that he's real, that he's transcendent, and and yet he's present. But at the same time, at this point, there's a blindness in your life. There's a spiritual emptiness that you're dealing with. And that is something that Saul is, is dealing with right at this moment. And that's because recognizing Jesus isn't the end. It's not the main goal of our life simply to recognize that Jesus is is present and who he is. I I love James 2.19. It helps us with this. It says, you believe God is one? Great. (laughs) You do well. But guess what? So do the demons. So do the demons and and the one that, that they work for, the enemy of God. They believe and they shudder. And if you read in the Gospels, there are moments where Jesus comes up on someone who is possessed by a demon. And I know that's weird to think about, and it's strange to try to reconcile in our mind, but there are folks who are being led by dark spirits. And when Jesus comes up on them, the demons are like, I know who that guy is. They recognize Jesus, but because they reject Jesus, they're scared and they flee. They run from him. And that's because just encountering Jesus isn't the end. That's not the goal. First, we have to recognize Jesus, right? We have to see him for who he is, but then we have to deal with the darkness we've walked in apart from him. And that's the point that Saul is at here. Look at verse 9. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Hang on, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I know of the things that he's done, the harm that he's caused your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. You want me to go to him? Hold on a second. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias listened, and in faithfulness he departed, and he entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. So first, we do have to recognize and see Jesus for who he is, and, and that's something that Saul has done, but then, it doesn't stop there, then we have to deal with the darkness that we've been walking in apart from Jesus. And that's what has Saul's mind spinning at this point, as, as everything that he's ever thought about Jesus and everything that he's ever thought about Christians was just proven to be wrong, that he had been 
wrong and he had seen everything wrong and he had done so much wrong. But then Saul is met by the people of Christ, right? By the church represented here by by one man, by Ananias. Ananias greets him. He welcomes him in. He speaks truth over Saul. He pours out undeserved grace over Saul, who, by the way, Ananias's name means the Lord is gracious. Did you know that? The Lord is gracious. Isn't that cool? Because even in his name, it tells Saul everything that Saul needs to know about the Lord. And the fact here that when Saul comes in and Ananias approaches him, Saul calls, he calls Saul brother. Think about this. Saul has come in a weakened man. He's, he's a man who he can't see. He's physically limited here. Everything that he's thought has been wrong, and now he's being approached by a Christian. In Saul's mind, like he's been broken down. He has been broken down to, to almost nothing. Everything he'd built his life on was nothing. And what's going to happen when the Christians find him? Are they going to take him out? Are they going to treat him like he had treated them? But instead, what he hears is Ananias call him brother. And man, that had to have brought so much peace and joy to Saul's, surely his fearful heart. And he heard Ananias' voice. He felt Ananias' hands. And that's the exact moment that the Holy Spirit opened Saul's eyes, both physically and spiritually. And then everything changed. I mean, the hunter, he, he found out he was being hunted, and he's caught by Christ. And when he's caught, what happens is he discovers John 10 is true. He discovers it for himself. It's not something he had to go read in a book. Oh, Jesus one time said this stuff in John 10. He knew it when he was caught by Christ. Here's what Jesus said in John 10. Jesus said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Saul knew this now, like he knew it for himself. He had been one who had hunted Christians in order to destroy them. That's what he had, he'd been the thief, and he was led by the great thief who desires to destroy, but he'd been hunted down by Jesus, and when he was caught, he learned it wasn't for his destruction, but he had been hunted down by Jesus so that he could receive life, real life, and he did. He received it gladly, and everything in Saul's life was made new. Look at verse 19. For several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately, I mean, this is amazing, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, the same synagogues that he would have drugged Christians into to have them beaten and tried. He's going into those synagogues saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, isn't this he who in Jerusalem destroyed all those who called on this name Jesus and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength, and he was confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This is the man who had sought to do the most harm to the earliest Christians, 
But then God saves him, and he becomes the most fearless follower of Jesus and the writer of about a quarter of the New Testament. Think about this. If you go to Philippians 3, he's writing, and he talk about how previously everything that had defined him, everything that he trusted in, everything he'd pursued, everything that he'd valued, everything that used to make him feel happy, everything that used to give him meaning and security, those things just don't work for him anymore. And it really, as he reflects, it's like those things never worked for him. He just didn't realize it. He was pretending. He was just trying to cover up how he felt. But now he's encountered something that did work, something so much greater. Philippians 3, 7, he says, but whatever those things were gained in me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is by every definition, conversion. Saul was converted and, and the word converted, I feel like it carries so much baggage today. If a person seeks to convert you, they're wanting you to what? They're wanting you to change. They're wanting you to change from one religion to their religion, from one political belief to their political belief, or from one viewpoint or philosophy to another, to theirs. And if you're like me, like that feels off and you just want to say, why don't you mind your own business, right? You go, you go, why don't you just mind your own business and leave me alone? I'll mind my business and you mind yours and we'll all be happier that way. But I want you to understand something. Jesus used no uncertain terms regarding conversion. In Matthew 18, 3, he said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are, here's our word, unless you are converted and you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says, unless you are converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That conversion, conversion is a requirement of being a part of, of, of God's family. And conversion, listen, it requires that you turn from absolutely everything. You turn away from everything and you turn to him and you trust him for everything fully. And conversion stories can vary in nature. They can look different ways and happen in different times, but there are certain elements that must be present if you've been truly converted. And, and three elements that are, are here in Saul's story that you can see them real clearly. First, there's a collision is what happens. You, you have it here. You have Saul and everything he has used to identify who he is, to define who he is, and all the pursuits and the directions of his life come into collision with Jesus and who he is and all that he desires and all that he is doing in the lives of people. There's a collision here that takes place, and that happens in every true conversion. But that's not the end. That's the beginning. Second, there is a dealing with the darkness, and Saul's doing that here. There's a dealing with life apart from Christ and what it has been. And then third, in every conversion, there's an embrace. It ends with a welcomed embrace, and Saul has just been welcomed by Christ into the family of God, and he's been welcomed by Ananias into the family of God in an embrace. And I want you to see this. I want you to really understand that it's not by accident. There is no such thing as an accidental conversion. There are no accidental converts. The Lord told Ananias, for he, Saul, is a chosen 
instrument of mine. And Saul, I mean, he didn't hear those words. It was Ananias who heard him. But Saul later would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 and say, you know, God chose us before the foundations of the world in Christ. He chose us, not because of anything that we could earn or learn in this life, but he came after us to adopt us into his family through Christ, not because of what we could earn or learn, but because of his kindness. There's no accidental conversions. They come because Christ comes for us. I love how one pastor said this. He said, Jesus is always the hunter and the initiator And he brings us to our knees, acknowledging how desperately we need him. If there was anyone who ever had come to the end of himself, man, it was Saul. And he said, our our Damascus roads are generally less dramatic than Saul's, but they are meant to have the same effect. All of our conversion stories, all of our Damascus roads, to break our compulsive independence and arrogance and to bring us to Christ for salvation or consecration. Our Damascus roads are meant to convey our emptiness and the greatness of Christ. Our emptiness apart from him and his absolute glory. Have we gotten the message? Have we gotten the message? Saul did. And the hunter became the hunted. And he was caught. And because he received all Christ had for him, he's now joined He's joined the hunt with Christ. He's hunting again, but it's different now. Everything has changed in his conversion. You know, everything. First, his identity. Go back to that Philippians 3 passage before he says, I count all things as a, a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Just before that, he talks about all of the things that had used to give him his identity, the things that he looked in the mirror and he said, this is who I am. All of that has changed now, and because that's changed, his mission has changed. He had been hunting to destroy Christians, and now he's hunting people to share the gospel. And I listen, I know that sounds weird too, like, like hunting people down with the gospel sounds like, like militant Christianity, which has been seen in some stories. I mean, you've seen it. It's dangerous and it's toxic in some people. But I, I tell you that in, in those cases, those people are not truly following Jesus at all. And I can tell you that because if you don't sound like Jesus and you're not humble and sensitive like Jesus, if you're not you're not truly loving and generous like Jesus, then you've missed it completely, right? Right? If you do not you not carry the character of Christ, you are not of Christ. And we might look at those folks and might say, "Well, they've just gone too far." We've seen them with picket signs and with screaming and criticism and judgment. And we might say, well, they've just gone too far. But the truth is, is that they never went far enough. They never went far enough into Christ and found out what it really, truly means to be captured by Christ. Sounds weird. I get it. But Paul, Saul, was meant to hunt. He was meant to hunt. And every Christian is meant to join the hunt with Christ. And hear me out, like that if that sounds weird to you, like if it sounds like a problem that you're to leave this place and you're to go hunt people down with the gospel, well, if you have a problem hearing that, then you also have a problem with the idea of Jesus calling his disciples fishers of men, right? Because what are fishers except for people who hunt fish? And Jesus was saying directly that his people are to go and hunt and catch people with the gospel. If, if you have a problem still with the idea of being a hunter, 
then, then listen to this. It's probably because we're still treating Christianity as advice instead of treating it as good news. And Tim Keller wrote about this in his book, Jesus the King. He, he wrote, religion is advice on how you have to live to earn your way to God. The gospel isn't advice. It's the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God. Jesus has already done it for you, and it's a gift that you receive by sheer grace through God's unmerited favor. If you seize that gift, if you, you seize it and you keep holding on to it, then Jesus is called to orbit your whole life around him. It's going to make you passionate to share this gift with those around you. So Keller writes, when you meet somebody with a different set of priorities or a different faith, you won't assume that they're inferior to you. You'll actually seek to serve them rather than to oppress them. And why? Well, Because the gospel isn't about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king and not just someone with the power and the authority to tell you what needs to be done, but someone with the power and the authority to do what needs to be done and then to offer it to you as good news. <laughs> Listen, this is silly, but picture it like this. It's like, it's like me having the the most delicious double dutch chocolate cake that could ever be found on this earth and i'm hunting you down with it and you're at work and then suddenly boom my head pops over the cubicle and i'm like hey there and you're going whoa what is this guy doing here and then you leave and everywhere you go i'm you're at the gym and here i am i'm on the treadmill next to you suddenly and i'm walking hey buddy and i'm just kind of waving at you and you're going there he is again and then everywhere you go you look over the corner and here I am, I'm here again. And, and you're running going, what is this guy doing? But what you don't understand is I'm not here to steal anything from you. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm here just to give you something wonderful. And I know that's silly. I know it's ridiculous, but, but how much more wonderful is what we're carrying around with us if we're in Christ? And doesn't that just give you a reason to join in the hunt? And joining in the hunt, that's just a more direct way of saying to live on mission. Living on mission is not simply about being a nice person. It's about seeking out people to share with them the incredible gift that we have received in Christ. And Saul, now instead of breathing in and breathing out murder, was breathing in and breathing out the sweet air of eternal life and of peace, and of real joy and satisfaction. And so he was hunting people down and breathing life to all who would listen. One guy said, instead of incarceration, he brought liberation. What a miracle. And all around us, miracles are waiting to happen. There's so much encouragement here in this text, in this story. Like You look at Saul, and you realize... We shouldn't give up on someone just because of their past. I think we do that. We look at someone and go, they're just too far gone. And if that was true, then then Saul would have been too far gone if anyone was. But God didn't give up on Saul, and we shouldn't give up on, on anyone else just because of their past. And you know what's true is, is one of those someones we shouldn't give up on that we often do is ourselves. You know, we're often quick to give up on ourselves having a redemption story or uh, of being used of use to God in some miraculous way. Jesus redeemed Saul's life fully, and he gave him more than he could have ever have expected, and then he used him in ways he could never have imagined. 
I love how uh, chapter 9, verse 31 comes to a close. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. What a game changer! Chapter 7, 8, the beginning of chapter 9, Saul had struck fear and chaos throughout the scattered church. And now he's been made new and he walks in it. And the Lord is using him to bring courage and bring peace and to build up the church and to lead them to trust in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. What a miracle. And the Lord can do the same thing with you. Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you that in your wisdom and providence, you ensured that we would know this story. And Holy Spirit, you you ensured that Luke would write down this story just as it is so that we could understand and maybe even see ourselves in this story. And maybe there are times that we like to identify with Paul the man who was transformed and was powerful for the kingdom of God. We like to think, oh, you know, I'm kind of like Paul. But far too few of us and far too uh, often do we ignore the fact that we're like Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was walking in darkness apart from Christ, kind of caught up in our own self-righteousness, identifying by all of the things that people have said about us and all the things that we have thought that was right, living lives in a way that is just dark, and we needed a collision. And I pray this morning for all those here who have had that collision, that that wouldn't be the end for them, but they would deal with the darkness before you so that they could experience the warmth of the welcoming embrace. Those who have This morning, I pray that this morning we would remember our stories and we would praise you for your goodness and faithfulness to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if there are any today who have not come to that moment, I pray that like Saul, today would be the day they come to the end of themselves. Not so that life would be taken from them, but so that they might experience real life in Christ on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.